This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community by Helen Schiller. This book tells the fascinating true story of an individual radical organizer turned independent Chicago City Council member and her 40-year struggle for justice in Chicago. Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, Alderwoman for Chicago's 33rd Ward, says that, quote, Helen Schiller's work inside and out of the Chicago City Council is a model for all those seeking to make real change in the world. From her tireless work challenging gentrification, police abuse, and homophobia, Schiller never lost sight of her roots and always put the struggle of poor and working class people first. No matter where you live and organize, there is much to be learned from Helen's inspiring and courageous life story. Read this book. Find Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win by Helen Schiller now at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the fifth and final episode of what started out as a four-part series and then became a five-part series on the history of modern Iran with Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi and Gulnar Nikpor. We begin this fifth and final episode in 1997 with reformist cleric Mohammad Khatami's surprise landslide election to the presidency. The reformists called for the liberalization of Iranian politics. By and large, they were one-time insiders, former members of the Khomeiniist left who had been on the militant edge of the Islamic Revolution. The very people who had taken radical actions like seizing the American embassy. But by the late 1990s, they had become liberals who sought conciliation and gradual reform of the regime, and they had dropped their more left-wing demands for economic justice. Hardliners responded with repression, including a series of extrajudicial killings of prominent intellectuals. Meanwhile, the Bush administration, embarking on its global war on terror, frustrated Khatami's geopolitical ambitions for peace by labeling Iran part of the axis of evil. The middle class became disaffected with reform because the political opening was blocked. The working class because economic justice wasn't even on the table. The result was the 2005 election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, a right-wing hardliner who, unlike other leaders, had not played a high-profile role in either the Islamic Revolution or early Islamic Republic. The son of rural migrants, Ahmadinejad, was able to achieve a degree of social mobility as he steadily climbed the rungs of the Islamist state. Despite his powerful backers, he positioned himself as an outsider who reveled in challenging the United States and its allies on the world stage. With Bush and Ahmadinejad in charge, the U.S.-Iran relationship headed toward a deeper crisis. At home, Ahmadinejad won re-election in 2009 in an election that opponents, who rallied around former Prime Minister Mir Hussein Mousavi's candidacy, decried as fraudulent. 
the resulting Green Movement mass protests were the largest since the Islamic Revolution and were repressed. Ahmadinejad had served Supreme Leader Khamenei's interests by putting an end to Khatami's reformist experiment. But the nuclear conflict and American-led sanctions had also led Iran into dire economic straits. And so then, in 2013, Hassan Rouhani took office with the mission of normalizing Iran's place in the geopolitical arena and righting the economy. In 2015, Rouhani took a major step toward achieving those goals when he signed the nuclear accords with the Obama administration. But Trump soon tore that agreement up and reapplied harsh sanctions, the second time in two decades that those in Iran who promised to pursue peace with the United States were proven to be dealing with a fundamentally untrustworthy country. Great Satan, indeed. In 2019, mass protests, heavily working class, erupted only to be brutally repressed. The possibility and plausibility of reformism was coming to an end. In 2021, right-wing candidate Ibrahim Raisi was elected president after the Guardian Council disqualified not only every reformist candidate, but also very moderate establishment ones. The election signaled the end of the reformist promise of changing the Islamic Republic from within laying the groundwork for the mass protests that broke out this September after Zina Masa Amini, a young Kurdish-Iranian woman, died in the custody of morality police. Amini was arrested for improperly covering her hair, according to the religious strictures imposed upon women by the government. The result, happening right now, is the third in a series of mass protest movements that have periodically broken out since 2009. Protests that, in some ways, echo those that powered the Islamic Revolution in 1979. But this time, instead of chanting, Death to the Shah, protesters are burning their hijabs and chanting, Death to the Dictator, and Women, Life, Freedom. And, unlike past protest movements, they are overwhelmingly and clearly calling for a total end to clerical rule. This series has been quite a ride, and unlike anything we've ever done at The Dig, which is really saying something given how in-depth we always go into everything. But I thought that given the present crisis in Iran, it was necessary to go even deeper, particularly because through the lens of Iran, one can explore so much about the entirety of world history, from communist internationalism and third-worldist nationalism to U.S.-backed coups and the rise of Islamism as the principal challenge to U.S. empire in the Middle East. I really do hope to do more series like this now and again in the future. What makes this series possible, what makes The Dig possible, is listeners like you supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Why do we need your money? Well, your contributions allow me to do this podcast full time and to pay everyone who works on the show. What's more, we are currently embarking on a special permanent project that's going to be a lot like Antibody, that story-driven, sound-rich, commie, This American Life type thing we did back in 2020. Our plan is to put out one of these episodes once every two months or so, and these episodes are expensive to make because they are time-consuming to make and we need to pay these hardworking producers well. But there is more to this deal. Not only are you making a contribution that allows us to put out all of our episodes free without a paywall, so that everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, can listen. 
Also, a contribution of any amount, and we will send you our weekly newsletter delivered to your email inbox. And a contribution of $10 or more a month, and we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. Please take a moment. Contribute what feels right to you right now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And then lastly, please do tell other people about the show, either in person, via text message, on TikTok, Twitter, if it still exists, as you're listening to this, Instagram, wherever. Our audience has roughly doubled over the past two years, which is amazing. But you can help bring more people to the dig by spreading the word and by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Okay, here's part five, the very final part of my interview with Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi and Golnar Nikpor on the history of modern Iran. Thank you so much for taking this deep dive with us. Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He is the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, associate editor of the journal Politics, and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. Golnar Nikpor is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran. She is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context, is on the editorial collective for the journal Radical History Review, and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. In 1997, Mohammad Khatami was elected president, the first president of the Islamic Republic from what became known as the reformist camp. And Khatami's election set in motion this broader cycle in Iranian politics that today seems to have reached its endpoint in exhaustion, perhaps. This seesawing back and forth between reformists and hardliners, a valve controlled by religious authorities who can block, thanks to Rafsanjani, whomever they choose from standing for office. There, there was Khatami, who was then followed by Ahmadinejad, who was then followed by Rouhani, who was and now Raisi. Who was Khatami and what was the reformists program? And what at that point had become of the Khamenei Rafsanjani force? And what sort of forces, by contrast, did Khatami represent? Mohammad Khatami kind of comes to the major prominence as the leader of the kind of reformist movement in 1997. But before that, he wasn't an outsider uh, to the political system. That's one thing to really sort of understand and emphasize about the figures, the primary figures who come to be known under the umbrella of reform or reformism in the Islamic Republic in the 90s, late 90s and after, are all really members of the earlier coalition who had been systematically disempowered over the course of the late 1980s and into the 90s, right? So there are members of the so-called sort of Khomeinist left uh, in many cases who kind of pivot towards a different type of politics. Khatami was also, um, he served as Iran's minister of culture um, for about a decade um, until uh, 1992. And he As I said, he wins the presidency in 1997 
against a total kind of regime insider uh, by the name of Nater Nouri, who was supported by Khamenei and others, really imagines himself from the time that the, you know, before the election is already starting to act as though he is president, he's meeting with other foreign leaders and so forth. But yeah, so Khatami, who had been, as I said, uh, not not an outsider by any means and part uh, founding member of the leftist association of combatant clergy um, at the time of a kind of break in the late 80s between right and left factions of the Khomeinist uh, coalition. He starts to run uh, his, uh, he runs essentially a campaign against the status quo. He actually brings together a lot of different forces. So for the first time, we have um, a presidential election where a, a candidate, Khatami, is specifically campaigning among Iran's ethnic minorities, among students, among women, um, who are really seen as the bedrock of his coalition. But I, I also want to emphasize that he wins. He winds up winning with an enormous um, majority, much, much bigger than anyone could have expected. So it's not just that he wins, but that he wins big against, um, as I said, Ali Akbar Nater Nouri, um, who is Khamenei's preferred candidate. He campaigns and wins the votes not only of these people who have been historically marginalized in the Islamic Republic, but also among even some members, uh, large swaths of the population who had historically been part of the Islamic Republic's poor constituency, who had grown frustrated and tired with what they saw as an increasingly corrupt, increasingly unaccountable, um, increasingly sort of authoritarian government. So, you know, he appeals to older members of the, uh, as I said, the revolutionary coalition, including large numbers of Iraq war veterans. He, When he winds up winning the vote with about, if I remember the numbers right, something close to 70% of the vote with a record uh, turnout, the coalition is clearly much, much bigger than just students and um, ethnic, you know, like the kind of mar- the more marginalized factions of the uh, electorate. Clearly wins among, even among war veterans, there's some evidence that even among sort of reform or left-leaning religious folks. And what he in some sense represents is an effort to say, hey, you know, these people who are empowered, empowered now are not actually the real sort of inheritors of the revolutionary legacy, right? We who have also been part of the revolution, we who supported the imam, who supported um, the transformation of the society into something more just, into something more open, and have been kind of discounted or thrown out, we actually, we are the real sort of inheritors of the revolutionary legacy, and we're here to take it back. So the the rhetoric in um, 1997 around Khatami is, on the one hand, pluralism. So he promises what he calls uh, the dialogue of civilizations, arguing against both hardliners and his own government and, you know, sort of Samuel Huntington style clash of civilizations rhetoric coming out of conservatives in the West. So he's sort of promoting throughout his tenure this idea of dialogue of civilizations. And on, on the other hand, talking about opening up press freedoms, creating more a more open public sphere. All of these guys who had been revolutionaries and in some sense revolutionary leftists in the earlier moments start looking to kind of um, their ethos and rhetoric um, shifts to kind of liberal, pluralist, 
open public sphere kind of rhetoric on the one hand, and on the other hand, talking about taking back the legacy of the social justice-oriented nature of the revolution on the other hand. So as I said, one key thing with this movement, which is dubbed the second of Khordad movement, which is the date in the Iranian calendar of the victory of Khatami over Nateq Nuri, it sees itself as not as being opposed to the Islamic system, the Nizam, but rather being the real inheritors of this sort of, or wanting to say, claim themselves as the inheritors of of the sort of justice-oriented vision of the revolution. And on the other hand, say, look, this is a time for, for change against this seeming stasis, the seeming unchanging rhetoric. We're no longer in the war. We're no longer in this moment where we have to use the same sort of language about everything. And the best way for me that I would put it is that he comes across as a breath of fresh air. People consider him charismatic, warm. The the adjectives that are used about him, both in domestic and in global context, is like he's smiling. He seems sweet. He seems not, you know, so there is this kind of also this the person, his personality is really, really really different than Nantar Nuri, who is like boring and cold and stiff and just seen as a total regime insider who has no real reason. Um, doesn't, you know, he's seen, you know, as kind of not actually even trying to appeal to Iranians because he so much sees himself as the obvious person who's going to take um, command. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of different um, forces at work. But the the last thing I'd like to emphasize is just that people really believe in this. Um, there is a sense of euphoria on Khatami's victory. People go out en masse to vote for him. So again, 80% um, turnout, something like 80, 81% turnout. And this is like huge because there just hasn't been this kind of public participation in an election since really the earliest, you know, the first couple of years after the revolution, there are these sort of big electoral moments and referenda and so forth. This is seen as something that people really believe in. They believe in his uh, desire to change the system and to to reform it from within. So you have these articles being written in the newly establishing reformist press that are talking about, yeah, the need to have not another revolution, but reform, that in fact reform is um, preferable, that there isn't a sort of appetite for another revolution, which is destabilizing and potentially violent, but that the system, given the fact that it does have these sort of democratic elements built into the constitution, however much they are sort of subsumed under this like broader non-elected clerical uh, authority, there's a kind of belief in the possibility of reform and the possibility of pushing the boundaries of what the Islamic system might actually look like. And given the exhaustion with that idiom, um, as you mentioned, Dan, that has really sunk in uh, in the last few years, I think it's worth emphasizing this was something that people en masse in Iran really did seem to believe in, that they believed in the possibility of reform is extremely important. Eskander? I think I just would like to emphasize that basically those political forces within the kind of ruling elite or the political class which rally behind uh, Khatami. Um, in the first instance, they never expected that he would actually win. Uh, when you read accounts 
of theirs and sort of their retelling of their mindset in the run up to the election. They anticipated they would get like I don't know three or four million votes, and it would just it would be it would be their stepping stone to kind of continue to build up their sort of re re sort of I guess um, reestablish their foothold in the state after they had been marginalised uh, for so for, for a number of years and pushed out. And obviously they end up getting like twenty million. And it's just uh, I mean one just sort of anecdote is that um, Hatemi's brother. Mohammed Reza Khatami, actually, I think, um, either before the ele- on the night of the election, ends up going to Australia for a conference because he just thinks it's, um, it's you know, it, he's not going to win. It's, um, and I think it's very unlikely. So I think kind of capturing uh, the degree of surprise which, the, which these people, which didn't call themselves reformists initially, actually had, that's important. But also, I mean, exactly as Golna was sort of conveying, there was, there was clearly, after, you know, decade of war and just austerity and all these sorts of things, a real thirst for um, sort of deep change. Uh, another thing which I think is kind of important to emphasise is the fact that many of those who went on to become reformists did actually play some quite... Um, did have a rather, how can I say, uh, dubious uh, history within the system in the in the 1980s and they all had a really quite checkered past so so for instance one of the key figures one key sort of intellectual architects Said Hajarian actually established the was one of the people to help find the found the intelligence ministry many of those who then supported uh, Khatami in crucial ways were very much part of the radicalism of students who seized the who seized the US embassy um, and there's lots of cases like this, but it's just a kind of um, hit home that they were like, as Golnar said, they were very much from within the system. They were very much active in the uh, 1980s. They felt that they had a claim. They felt that they had more claim. They felt that Khomeini was actually closer to them than they than he was to um, the right or the new right. So and again, it was very much sort of reasserting what they thought was their kind of entitlement, really, um, to 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 sort of have a hand in the state. But at the same time they had dramatically changed. I mean, some of them, at least, many of them had. So one phenomenon that you see, which is quite interesting, is that when many of them sort of in the sort of the late 80s and early 90s are pushed out of political office and in essence kind of purged in a way, in a light, a light purge, we can say, many of them then go to university. Many of them go to the University of Tehran. Many of them start actually pursuing kind of PhDs in political science um, and start sort of familiarising themselves with, you know, very much of the time, the language, sort of the literature of, around civil society, start reading Anthony Giddens, start reading um, all this sort of literature on the third wave of democratisation, and so on and so forth. And this does actually have an influence on their thinking. Um, and this doesn't mean that, you know, all of this, uh, doesn't mean that necessarily Khatemi was on the same, it doesn't mean that this, was, this reformist coalition had sort of an identical conception of what they wanted to do or how they wanted to use this moment. But I do think it is important to understand that there was a, there was a genuine transformation within uh, the political class. I mean, this section of the, this sort of, this faction of the political class. Um, and you see this in various other um, ways as well, sort of um, manifesting. So uh, this, in this period, we see the establishment of what is called the um, Islamic Participation Front. It was meant to basically be like a popular organ that would mobilize people in support of uh, Khatami's project. Um, and this is, you could say, set up by the more radical wing of the reformists. Khatami, from the very beginning, kind of wants to keep a distance um, with respect to the participation front, he wants to very much present himself as a leader of the nation, of everybody. 
He doesn't want to be um, a polarizer. He's very, very worried. And by his nature and temperament, he's very, very conciliatory in trying to actually reach out to um, all sectors of society as well as the political class. And he often would, you know, gets criticized for this because he's basically trying to please everybody and ends up pleasing nobody. But I would say another thing that I think actually is really, really important to kind of stress in this time, uh, sort of in this period, is in 1999, this is where we see. Actually, and this is probably one of the, the most important achievements of the period, actually, is sort of the attempt to institute elections um, across um, local, uh, sort of over a thousand, close to a thousand cities and 35,000 villages. Um, so sort of basically for the first time activate local government on a huge scale. And the sort of the reasoning behind this was very much that through local government that you'll actually be, in a sense, empowering voices from below. And this might actually then give impetus um, to this um, democratic sort of, um, sort of democratization. And one other thing actually that I want to flag is that whereas Raf Sanjani was very much focused on, you know, the economy, economic reconstruction, building up a bureaucracy in order to carry out his his vision of the and the in the direction um, he sought to take the Iranian economy. The reformers, the more radical wing of the reformers, did see um, this as an opportunity to pursue what they called uh, political development, and basically it was a euphemism for sort of a control, highly controlled, managed form of sort of democratization, um, where they would still nevertheless um, have a great degree, a large degree of control in the direction that it took, and who could participate, and under what circumstances, and so on and so forth. But this was not a small. It was actually a, a huge undertaking. It was very much kind of advanced by, you know, committed, I would say, people who were individuals who were very much had a, a standing within the system and had very much been devotees of Ayatollah Khomeini, but, yeah, had had significantly changed. And many of them are now um, dissidents or some of them are actually in exile. Um, but this project in 1999, I think it was a very, very important one to kind of reconfigure the state and actually summon a lot of those kind of d democratic energies, which had been kind of quashed um, for you know the preceding uh, since since really 1981, um, and obviously very much kind of um, suffocated in the atmosphere of the war, and then uh, two two terms of um, Raf Sanjani, um, and just one just final um, thing which is important. I do think um, with the end of the Cold War, uh, obviously which is happening in like 1989, 1990. Um, reformers themselves um, very much complete these sort of this reformers in the political class they do completely uh, in a sense or they kind of renounce um, any kind of um, so a lot of the revolutionary um, rhetoric and aspirations um, which they had and they very much kind of kind of empty out a lot of the um, the commitment actually to um, sort of radical redistribution um, which previously had characterized this Khomeinist left in the 1980s. Um, and increasingly, I mean, under the influence of what was known as kind of the, the Keon circle, or this sort of trend of religious intellectuals um, within Iran, who were very much like ardent readers of Karl Popper and Friedrich Hayek and um, Raymond Aron and Isaiah Berlin, and really had imbibed a kind of a certain kind of a, a, a brand of uh, Cold War liberalism uh, in this period, actually became were profoundly anti, became profoundly anti-left and anti-socialist and anti-government often, and actually really did sort of buy into. Um, sort of the, there is no sort of the rhetoric and sort of the imaginary of this. There is no alternative. It was the end of history. 
yeah, the end of history. And so this is why actually many of them become very staunch, not all, I don't want to generalize, but you know, many of them became very strong advocates of kind of some kind of detente with the United States. So actually, I mean, Abbas Abdi, who was one of the hostage takers, uh, radicals from students and hostage takers in 1979, he famously did a poll in this period where he kind of polled like uh, what proportion of Iranians wanted to re-establish relations with the United States or have negotiations and detente with the United States and actually showed that uh, a majority of Iranians did want this. And this then earned him basically a prison term. But the irony is, I mean, this was somebody who was literally involved in uh, the takeover of the uh, US embassy, was now very much had a very different kind of politics, who was very much, you could say, increasingly moving to the right in terms of economic policy, as well as actually some kind of uh, reconciliation with the United States. So we do really just see this deep-seated kind of change in the political imaginary of these Khomeini leftists, uh, which I think is, you know, it's important to kind of understand. And also, it's also important to understand for the kind of the limit, what were the limits of the reformist project and ultimately why it became, it became unstuck. Yeah, I think that's very important to understand from outside around, particularly from the United States, because I think what really gets conveyed is just the political Liberal, the project of political liberalization of people like Katami, and not the more neoliberal economic project that that's that that's related to. In two thousand five, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad won the presidency, defeating, of all people, Rafsanjani. What was going on at this moment? Had Rafsanjani at this point somehow come to represent somehow come to represent reformism in some sense? And either way, what had happened? to that reformist moment that had brought Katami and his allies such overwhelming electoral support in this moment of really widespread popular optimism. And then by contrast, what forces did Ahmadinejad represent? Because externally, he was portrayed alternately as a clownish buffoon or as a monstrously anti-Semitic, anti-Israel menace. But Ahmadinejad was not just simply a hardliner in terms of being pro-clerical establishment. He was also really an economic populist. What was going on in this moment? We need to try and understand why Khatami's project and why the broader reform project um, ultimately um, failed. Um, And it did fail. And from when we're looking back in 2022, obviously it's even more obvious that that project was was definitely not a success and there are lots of reasons for that i mean i think first of all we just we need to uh, understand that it was systematically uh, stonewalled uh, blocked uh, and repressed so so initially when uh, Khatami comes in like all of his legislation is pretty much um, rebuffed by a conservative majlis um, even though there is very much a flourishing of the press in the first two years or so of his tenure. And it really was actually a a flourishing. And there was a lot of interesting independent and investigative journalism and a lot of pushing of the boundaries there. And it was actually very much called a sort of spring of the press in this period. And there was was also very much, you know, a strong advocacy by people in the reform movement and the minister of culture at the time that, you know, strengthening the fourth estate um, was essential to... Um, buffeting kind of um, Hatami's um, project. 
um, and, and making it more resilient and sort of acting as as um, a defender because obviously there was already a conservative media sphere epitomized in the newspaper K Han, which pretty much would always take the most you know the hardest line and very much was uh, aligned with the uh, with what the what whatever the line happened to be uh, of the supreme um, leader of Ayatollah uh, Khamenei in this period. But quite early on, you know, there's a series of um, crises. So in 1999, there is the closure of a newspaper called uh, Salam, which is very much the newspaper of the Khomeinist left. Um, its editor was none other than Hojat al-Islam Musavi Khomeiniha, the same uh, gentleman, the same cleric, who was the mentor of the Islamist students who took over the US embassy. He was now basically the editor of the, one of the most important reformist newspapers um, in um, the country. And this basically sparks um, student, a series of student protests in 1999, which are brutally um, repressed. So that was sort of one major kind of flashpoint. But there, you know, really what we're seeing in this period is the non-accountable, non-sort of non-electorally sort of accountable organs of the state. So in particular, the, the Ministry of Intelligence, the Judiciary, the prosecutor's office, um, and so on, basically going after anyone who was, in a sense, low-hanging fruit and somehow affiliated or attached to the reformist project. I think this is super important. It's also in this period that we see very much the active presence of what is called the special court for clergy. So a lot of people just think that the clergy was just a, as a cohesive block and they were just all sort of ruling together. This wasn't the case. Um, you know, It's also in this period that we see a number of like prominent uh, reformists. So one comes to mind was Abdullah Nouri, who was being, you know, uh, proposed for various different ministerial portfolios. He was put on trial by this um, court, special court for clergy. Mohsen um, Kadiva, another sort of well-known dissident, put basically lots of dissident, basically dissident clerics were being disciplined through the mechanism of this special um, court for clergy. And then similarly, in um, we we see in two thousand with the sixth majlis, the sixth parliament. A very strong showing of the reformers, actually. Um, so the so the reformers wasn't dead in 1999. It had been pushed back, rebuffed. There were you know significant closures of the press pursued by the prosecutor's office. Um, but in 2000, we did there there was actually a significant showing of the reformers in the sixth parliament, um, who very much then you know the, especially the more critical voices sought to push for, in some sense, even uh, a, sort of a new sort of constitutional settlement. But yeah, it was it was very much put to bed and resisted, and actually, um, and and just wasn't successful um, ultimately. Similarly, we see um, Khatami propose what was called uh, the twin bills, which are very very important. So uh, one of the bills was that to really sort of give the president um, sort of greater um, power in the context of the overall sort of institutional configuration of the state, so that he could carry out his agenda in a more decisive way. Um, and another one was actually to restrict the Guardian Council's ability to disqualify candidates, which obviously the irony is this was going to be sent to the Guardian Council and there and, and there was very much an impasse and so something which obviously was not going to be approved. And really what we see in the early 2000s is Khatami having to withdraw this in like you know, abject kind of humiliation. Um, and it's sort of, in a sense, the, the last um, nail in the coffin. And I mean, and, and in addition to this, I mean, we have to remember that it's also in this period that we see what, what was called the chain murders. So we see the intelligence ministry basically uh, executing, killing, extrajudicially executing and murdering um, a number of um, very prominent intellectuals um, as well. And this also sets the Khatami uh, administration into crisis. 
Uh, and actually, it's actually prominent people who are close to Khatami who um, leak this, leak that the you know, elements within the Ministry of Intelligence were involved. And similarly, uh, because of this, sort of, you could say the key reformist theoretician, Saeed Hajarian, uh, this is sort of an assassination attempt against him. Um, and he is shot, but he is not killed, but he is basically permanently paralyzed as a result. So there was violence even, and this is the same person I said, who's, who helped establish the intelligence ministry in the 1980s. So um, this is actually, there is, it's not just a matter of just push and pull. There is actual, you know, violence is being unleashed against um, prominent figures um, within the reform movement, against the students, obviously, um, who protested in 1999. And we really just see on all fronts, all cylinders, really, the conservative, the, the establishment and the deep state, you could say, pushing back um, against this agenda. Um, and just to go back to 1999 and the student protests, actually, this is sort of also the first time that we see the Revolutionary Guard basically come out and announce that they will intervene unless Khatami does something, takes decisive action. Um, and, P- and some of the signatories there are people like Ghali Baf and Qasem Soleimani and some of these big names who will become kind of important later on. So, um, you know, it's basically systematically kind of strangled the project. And this obviously creates a massive gap in expectations amongst uh, Iranians who had voted for Khatami very enthusiastically twice over and were hoping that somehow this structural deadlock in the reform of the Islamic Republic might be uh, overcome. And clearly that doesn't come to pass. Another, I mean, also one thing to explain, I mean, one of the, actually the main slogans of the reformers in this period, or at least the more radical wing, was actually sort of mobilise from below. So you mobilise your base from below in order to basically negotiate from on high or at a, from, from above. So you, you mobilise and bring pressure from below and then you negotiate on high. And I guess one of the fundamental kind of deficiencies of the reformer strategy is that they really didn't, the way they actually sought to mobilise people was very much in the confines of what I outlined of this participation front, which still... Uh, was defined by this kind of insider-outsider dynamic where really sort of only insiders within the political class could hold the reins. It really kind of always struggled to trust and reach out to um, not only sort of minorities and the women's movement, but organised labour in any meaningful sense. Um, It was just always very conservative with a small c um, in terms of its willingness to reach out to extra-parliamentary forces, extra sort of electoral, those, uh, those who don't necessarily um, have a, a media or defined place within the, um, the institutions of the Islamic Republic to mobilize them um, in order to kind of ex- extract leverage. And, and, and in any event, there's, there are obviously questions whether this would have worked in it, anyhow, because um, simply the robustness of the judiciary and the deep state was so, was so strong, they were so unwilling um, to budge on, on in terms of, you know, their control of the direction, the overall direction of the state, that the reformist project was really up against it. And so by the time we come to 2005, there's great disillusionment um, with that project. And then when you, and that's further compounded when you um, look at the, uh, you know, the sort of the, Khatemi's this absolute sort of emphasis on, you know, we have to carry out the constitution, we have to focus on the rule of law, we have to do all of these sorts of things, whereas economic justice, greater redistribution, uh, and so on and so forth, are very much secondary considerations. So in a sense, you know, not only is the, mid, the many of the middle classes who voted for Khatemi in 1997 and 2001 kind of alienated with the project, but many sort of um, working people similarly uh, also um, don't know where they fit in with this project and don't see what it's actually doing for them. Connor? Yeah, so that's the context in which 
Mahmoud Ahmadinejad wins the presidency in 2005. And he uh, wins against that old, our old friend, um, Ali Akbar Rafsanjani, who really represents insider's insider, right? So to, to kind of put in perspective the figure, the type of figure Ahmadinejad is, and to explain his really unlikely rise to international prominence, which in some sense is actually even more unlikely than Khatami's victory. I think we need to know a little bit about who he is as a person. So listeners will probably have noticed that a lot of the people we've talked about in the aftermath of 1979, maybe if not all of them, then certainly most of them have been members of the ulama, their clerics. Ahmadinejad is not. Many of the reformist figures, the most important reformist figures, were earlier members of the state elite or of the Khomeinist uh, sort of insiders of the revolutionary groups that came out of the 1979 movement. And Ahmed is not. He's not a person who was an important figure in, the 19, in 1979 or through the 1980s. So the victory, his victory obviously represents a right-wing, a sharp right-wing response, a reaction to the electoral successes of uh, Khatami and reformists. But he represents a very different type of you know, what we might call, you know, the right wing. He's not at all a part of the old guard. Um, and he's very much uh, a, a populist. He presents himself as a kind of humble man of the people, that he's an ordinary person. And this is in stark contrast to Rafsanjani, who not only is, as I said, an insider's insider, but um, has very much enriched himself uh, in his in his position as insider's insider, maybe the face, one of the faces of some of the corruption or excess of the, of the elite, uh, Islamic Republic elite. So Ahmadinejad himself, you know, he's the, he's the son of a grocer. And this is, and how, this, he talks about this all the time. He's the son of a grocer. His father had also sort of a humble and pious person who taught neighborhood Quran classes. And he's born in a small town in the southeast of Tehran in a poor background, a humble background. At some point during the, he is a, a student throughout the 1980s studying engineering. There's some evidence that he's part of the sort of um, sort of re- revolutionary uh, Khomeini-inspired students who are excited about the cultural revolution in the in the universities and sort of absolutely sort of has this this politics brewing at this young age. But of course, he's not, as I said, he's not a national figure at this point. He, you know, at some point, uh, seemingly volunteers, joins one of these sort of volunteer militias briefly during the time of the war, although he's not really part of the, he's not actually a member of the Sepa Pastoran or anything. And again, this is all part of the sort of myth building of his history too, is that we don't actually have He's not at any stage in this early moment a major power broker. But in by the time 2005 rolls around, he's been mayor of Tehran for a couple of years. And again, his rise to even local political prominence is, is again, emphasizing his humble origins, the fact that he is just a revolutionary. Uh, he's committed to revolution, uh, the revolutionary sort of ethos, and that he is one of the people he is exactly of the social class that has been lifted to the to possibility by the revolution he is one of the his family are the wretched that Khomeini talked about and here he is now mayor of Tehran he presents himself he says i'm one of you you know to the sort of ordinary working class uh sort of pious uh, younger younger people so he really presents himself as somebody who is 
a major break with what has overstuffed, overfed figures like Rafsanjani or so forth. So he's similarly trying to draw on the legacy of the revolution and himself as, and, and his social class as the real inheritors of the revolution, right? So if we've talked about with the reformist movement that this is political elites who have had major fallings out and they have sort of shifted some of their political and economic uh, worldviews and arrived at these new politics and are trying to reestablish themselves as somehow uh, part of this revolutionary legacy or maybe even the the major players in the revolutionary uh, victory. Ahmadinejad is trying to do the same, but from below, right? There is, he is presenting himself as just an ordinary guy who the revolution has sort of brought to this point and, and someone who cares very deeply. So he's running on an anti-corruption platform. He's running, which is extremely a popular position, right? Across the political spectrum. Because at this point, corruption is really apparent, as apparent as it was at any point in the Shah's government. So yeah, he's not a high-ranking cleric. He's not a high-ranking member of the military. He's not, which high-ranking members of the military would be the, some of the few non-clerical figures who were in the public eye, right? He just presents himself as a devoted and pious citizen who, who is simply invested in a sort of returning the revolution to its, its children, its, in, the people who deserve it. He, comes, he wins in 2005. Now, Rafsanjani thinks that the reformist vote will go to him in part because other reformist candidates are disallowed from running. Um, so there's really no one for the reformists to vote for. And there's a split in the reformist camp about whether to even bother with the vote or whether they should, you know. So this had been an argument in the, in the, in the 2003 parliamentary election as well about whether or not uh, reformists should, should sort of bother with the process given how much they had been disen disempowered by by all of the the systems that Eskandar outlined. So in 2003 the parliamentary election was the extremely low turnout, right, compared to just a few years prior when Khatami won election, it was just like a huge drop in percentage of turnout, maybe barely 50%. So Rafsanjani assumes that the reformist vote will go for him and that he'll somehow just win based on his stature. But again, Ahmadinejad uh, wins as kind of a consummate outsider, consummate, you know, he was compared in his day in American media to George George W. Bush. But that's not exactly right, because, of course, George W. Bush comes from a prominent political family. In some ways, there's no exact correlate. I've seen him in, sometimes compared to the way that Trump, like what Trumpists seem to think Trump is, which is somehow an outsider to the elite, despite his being an incredibly wealthy <laughs> um, elite. Um, but Ahmadinejad actually is that thing, uh, is the populist figure. He also, uh, this is the period in which the nuclear issue gets sort of brought to the brought to prominence. Uh, Ahmadinejad seems particularly invested in pushing the nuclear issue towards confrontation. He declares his intention to restart the nuclear enrichment program. And remember, the nuclear program had been started by the, um, with the full support of the global powers under the Shah. But Ahmadinejad says that this is a nationalist issue. So he actually does, he very deftly takes up the nuclear issue as a nationalist issue, even though his main base of support is, of course, other, uh, what, what start to call themselves principalists, uh, people who believe in the principles of Islam and the revolution, but he, you know, takes up the nuclear issue as a as a as a national issue, and um, says that Western powers have no right to tell Iran what what um, what type of um, energy that they're going to use. 
this is uh, the context in which Ahmadinejad rises and the sort of image that he presents himself as, at first with a great deal of support by the powers that be and by Khamenei, but eventually, um, you know, he is a kind of, he is a wild card, an uncontrollable brand unto himself, really. He's, a, he's like a wild man. <laughs> yeah, he's a wild man. I mean, a good Twitter follow, really big fan of Biggie and Tupac, and just a, just a, like a kind of a character. He has this kind of um, multiple personalities. Um um, like a lot of populists, actually. And I think it is, I mean, it, Facebook speaks to, I think he is, I think he's very similar to Trump, actually. I think they're very much a similar personality type. Just to pick up um, with what Golnar was saying and her characterization of Ahmed, I think we need to remember that conservatives or this sort of conservative establishment, including Ayatollah Khamenei himself, were very much kind of shell-shocked by the degree of support which the reformers project had actually managed to had actually managed to kind of provoke and sort of generate that kind of that the level of enthusiasm and legitimacy for that project um, electorally. So really the conservatives and Ayatollah Khamenei in many ways were looking for um, a comparable figure in the conservative or principalist or whatever you want to call it camp that had that kind of je ne sais quoi, who had that sort of that X factor. Um, Popular who, appeal. Yeah, popular appeal, um, exactly. We, and and they had actually really struggled to find somebody um, that could do that because many of them were just lacked any charisma, were extremely dull, were just basically reciting... All these dour, dour old clerics with big beards. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. And just the, the, the same kind of scripts, the same kind of rhetoric. It was just very predictable. It was boring uh, as hell. And and really people had enough. And it, could, and it, couldn't, it couldn't really reach beyond a very, very small number of people. So... While Gona is completely right that uh, Ahmadinejad was like not part of the old guard and he was in that sense an, out, an outsider, he pre- very much presented himself as such. There's kind of like a dual, look. there's two different things going on at the same time. Here. There's on the one hand, he's presenting himself as an outsider, but he is almost like a stealth candidate by uh, elements uh, within the leader's office. Often people speculate it might be his, 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 his favorite son, Mojtaba, and elements within the revolutionary guard and so on. Um, to really galvanize and to fashion actually a popular block, but in the in, in, to advance obviously um, uh, the rights interests um, in this context, um, and he he constantly does this kind of populist um, kind of bait and switch. So on the one hand, obviously very kind of harsh anti-Israeli uh, rhetoric, the sort of bizarre and sentry comments around the Holocaust, which only appeal to a very kind of maybe a small fringe um, elements. He obviously also tight, very much kind of spoke up kind of lay Shi'i millenarianism which again also has this dual kind of identity insofar as it's very much, a, it suggests a religious fervor, but it also, uh, by all constantly kind of talking about his personal relationship to the hidden imam, um, he's in many ways kind of circumventing the clergy. So increasing this kind of like anti-establishment rhetoric that he's using, which initially was kind of rehearsed and to some extent maybe disingenuous and obviously did speak to his, um, maybe his class background and, and the fact that he benefited from the mobility of the um, Islamic Republic, um, increasingly starts to target the, the clerical uh, establishment um, itself. Um, but also I need to think, I just one more thing, I just really do think we have to stress that. I mean, Ahmadinejad enjoyed more oil revenues than pretty much than any administration. I think by all previous administrations uh, following the revolution combined, so he just he I think as many as as much as eight hundred billion dollars worth uh, of oil revenues flooded uh, into Iran between two thousand and five and two thousand and thirteen, and he then obviously used this um, to great effect with cash handouts 
Um, he had this sort of fated um, sort of housing project to build housing for four million people um, called Mascan Amer, which his execution was uh, in many ways a disaster, but it actually did have some kind of results, which then he could then um, sell to his constituency. He was famed for going, you know, to pro- on provincial tours. So he went on more provincial tours than any other president previously. And this again was, you know, the typical sort of populist uh, move of establishing, you know, the leader establishing his direct connection to the people, being the voice of the people. But at the same time, he was very much allied with and and, and part and parcel of this agenda, advancing the increased securitization and the and the increasing role of the Revolutionary Guards in um, Iran's economy. And finally, I mean, it's also during Ahmadinejad's tenure that we see this basically fire sale of nationalized industries and sort of a giveaway um, to being sold off to um, to parastatal organs. So everything from uh, pension funds through to various kind of um, parastatal organs, such as the Revolutionary Foundations, which also have a very significant role in uh, the Islamic Republic and the and and the and the economy in Iran, um, and really aren't accountable in any way, shape, and form. Um, as well as obviously the kind of the corporate wing of the Revolutionary Guards, so um, construction projects, involvement in the oil industry, often which they would then subcontract to other sort of uh, other sort of private companies. Um, so you get so really it's under I mean, as well as we see populism and sort of all of this populist appeal, of fiery rhetoric, and so on. We also see very much yeah this increasing kind of uh, this massive increase in crony capitalism actually and he actually dissolves the plan famously he in 2007 he dissolves the planning and budget organization which had been in existence since the late 40s just avoid any kind of accountability so these are kind of i think this is just important to highlight these factors to really kind of understand like the multiple things that were going on in that period we should pause here to outline the geopolitical situation of that moment in that that era, which which Golnar touched on a bit. This is in the wake of the U.S.'s invasion and occupation of Iraq, and just a few years prior, as as at the very moment that Khatami was reaching out with an olive branch, George W. Bush was declaring Iran to be part of this axis of evil, and making Iran out to be this almost uniquely evil regime in the Middle East, even as Iran had helped the U.S. in the invasion of Afghanistan, and even as the U.S.'s principal allies in the region, of course, Saudi Arabia and Israel, were and are obviously absolutely ghoulish regimes. What was the U.S. posture toward Iran, and how did it develop under under Khatami and then Ahmadinejad? And more generally, how did these years, the heyday of the war on terror, and more specifically of course, very consequentially, the invasion of Iraq, but Afghanistan also, I mean, literally the U.S. invading and occupying the two countries on Iran's borders, areas that that, that Persia and Iran have been at war over, over the centuries. How did that all play out, especially as the nuclear question became ever more central to the conflict with the U.S.? There's so many moving pieces there. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that question. And you're absolutely right to point to the broader geopolitical context of this era. Now, Khatami, you know, had actually scored some victories um, with um, in terms of uh, extending a kind of olive branch to Europe. Some as as we've kind of outlined, you know, there was some effort um, made to, you know, one of the things that he comes to power promising is, yeah, this dialogue of civilizations and this opening. Right. This possibility for opening. There is some hope in the post 9-11 moment. You know, there's, for instance, there are these very publicized images of Iranians 
having vigils for those who were killed in 9-11 and so forth. And this kind of possibility of a new image or imaginary regarding Iran um, in the Khatami era. Um, now, Khatami and his sort of foreign policy people, his coalition, thought that there was possibility for a kind of uh, rapprochement with the U.S. in the wake of the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, uh, in part because because Iran helps with that with that effort. You know, the Taliban was uh, considered a dangerous government from the point of view of Iran, and from Iran's the Iranian perspective, this makes sense because they're right on their border, right? It's not like the U.S., like half a world away. Um, and the Taliban have been oppressing Hazaras, who are Shias, who Iran kind of considers themselves to have a duty to protect in, in Afghanistan. That's right. So they're joining this coalition against the Taliban in Afghanistan. And the reformists, you know, who need a win at this point, um, you know, after all of this sort of uh, stymieing of their of their platforms, of all of these sort of, of the student protests getting crushed, of all of this frustration and sort of disenfranchisement from their core supporters who are feeling like they're not really carrying out any of their promises. So, you know, this is 2001, 2002. And so they're thinking maybe, just maybe, there will be some kind of um, opening with the U.S. And they're actually talking to important folks in the U.S. Uh, State Department. And this is when Bush drops his famous Axis of Evil speech in 2002. It's in the 2002 State of the Union, and he puts Iran alongside uh, Iraq and North Korea in this so-called axis of evil. And this comes as a total shock to the reformists who aren't, they don't have a sense that this is about to happen, that this speech is about to happen. They had been thinking that things were getting kind of closer to some kind of conversation. And it actually even surprises some senior members of the, some veterans in the U.S. State Department who had been part of this kind of, these channels of working with the Islamic Republic, the Khatami government, and their coalition against the Taliban. So this is kind of a surprise to people in both governments that that Bush takes this posture. And we have really the kind of neocon machine to thank for this, the people close to Bush, the neocons close to Bush, who very much had Iran in their sights. You know, they're like, we we're going to get our sink our teeth into Iraq and then Iran is next. So they this is very much the neocon imaginary and the neocon project of what is at this point starting to be dubbed regime change, the idea that we're going to simply wipe off the map, these governments that we don't like. Um, And this is in some ways a kind of not a final nail in the coffin of Khatami, then certainly it, it sets back the reformist project as well, because the, you know, the sort of so-called hardliners, the right-wingers can can say, hey, look, you just can't trust, you know, look, this is what the U.S. will do. So at, at these moments where it seems like there's this opening, and we have another one um, with the nuclear deal that the Obama administration reaches with Iran and that Trump just sort of unilaterally throws out the window. These moments of that one's a bigger breakthrough, but these moments of potential opening or breakthrough are then their their sort of immediate reason for failure is U.S. intransigence, hardline uh, as, uh, members of the U.S. administration, absolutely sort of even surprising other, <laughs> sometimes surprising to the surprise of others in the government. 
And then hardliners in Iran can say, look, we don't call him the great Satan for nothing. Look. <laughs> no, exactly. This is obviously these moves are not supported by the by the right wingers and the Iranian government either. But this gives them an easy excuse to say, hey, look, this is what happens when you when you trust when you trust the United States. So that axis of evil speech is actually quite devastating to the possibility of of moving forward in a new direction. And then in the aftermath of Khatami losing, you know, the reformist movement, losing momentum and being repressed and then not being able to um, put up its preferred candidates and Ahmadinejad coming to, to government, then a new sort of set of relationships emerges with in that context. And that's the, the context in which the nuclear issue starts to become important. You know, if there is a government in place with Khatami that is interested in a certain kind of conciliatory posture towards the United States, that is certainly... Ahmadinejad is certainly represented a break with that. And then, yeah, he's on the one hand, like really interested, I think, at the level of his international, how he's perceived internationally with being with being perceived internationally. This is a man who likes the spotlight. He famously comes to Columbia University and proclaims that we we don't have homosexuals in Iran like you do here. And this is one of the things that becomes like front page news and his, as as Eskandar said, his just odious and uh, bizarre kind of positions on the Holocaust and so forth. So he likes making these big bold statements that get him in the news. He's kind of rock star weirdo in the in the public eye. But he's a very very different type of figure when it comes to the idea of yeah conciliation with the United States. And in fact, I think it's also worth noting, yeah, that this is a moment where you see a kind of really interesting in the figure of. I, I kind of alluded to this before, but you see an interesting fusion in the figure of Ahmadinejad and in the coalitions around Ahmadinejad of a kind of Islamic Republic nationalism, right? It's about a kind of stature on the global stage, a kind of um, uh, posture vis-a-vis the global powers, of standing up to the global powers in a certain way, but also of saying that, you know, the reason that we want to sort of move forward with peaceable nuclear program is because we deserve the right to sort of make decisions about our own resources and kind of calls calling to mind, um, sort of intentionally calling to mind 1953 and the oil crisis and so forth. So again, there's this interesting kind of push and pull in the Islamic Republic between the the Islam internationalist Islamist imaginary and the more staunchly nationalist imaginary that Ahmadinejad kind of represents something of both trends in a, in a unique way. In 2009, mass protests that became known as the Green Movement erupted after Ahmadinejad defeated Mir Hussein Mousavi for the presidency in what both protesters and Mousavi alleged was a fraudulent vote. Like Raf Sanjani, though, Mousavi seems like an odd fit for the reformist lane, given that he served as prime minister throughout much of the 1980s. But why why did this mass movement erupt when it did? And what is, in retrospect, the significance of that movement and its repression, and also the the election that, that prompted it all, in the broader sweep of Iranian history? Yeah, you're right. Um, Mousavi is very much a member of the old God. He was prime minister. He was Khomeini's prime minister. He was often referred to, you know, as the prime minister of the imam. Um, um, he was, you know... Uh, a key leader in the course of the of the Iran Iraq War, and for many he kind of summed up memories of that really quite yeah difficult and dark period. But at the same time, he was seen as someone committed to 
issues of still social justice. So you know, he, he was seen actually as something of a relic in many ways. Um, and while he was very much dismayed of the trajectory of the Islamic Republic under Ahmadinejad, and I think actually it is very important to realise that a significant swath of the political class was dismayed, was just aghast um, at this period and what they saw Ahmadinejad as doing. And they just saw him actually opening the doors to corruption, securitization, um, the gradual erosion of the role of sort of Republican or Democratic elected popular institutions in the Islamic Republic, complete contempt for the rule of law, and so on and so forth. So they, they all thought of it as very much um, a, a deviation um, of the sort of the project or the you know the project which they very much sort of had a claim to and they had a sense of ownership with respect to you know the Islamic Republic and 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 sort of the and the trajectory it was actually supposed to follow but he was at the same time he was a relic he actually hadn't been he'd really been absent from public life and he was known you know he was trained as an architect he would do uh, his paintings and his also his his wife and partner Zahra Rahnavad was also an accomplished kind of um, academic in her own right and very much often seen as one of the sort of exemplary f- figures of Islamic feminism anyway he'd largely been absent from um, the scene but uh, as I said a huge part of the political class was profoundly kind of dismayed and really thought that a challenge was absolutely necessary in order to kind of set it back on the right track and I mean the I mean I remember that period quite vividly and I was in Iran for quite for most of it and um, um, I remember sort of the televised interviews um, very vividly and it was really kind of very very festive atmosphere um, this was sort of the first time that these sort of these debates were being uh, televised to like a mass audience in this way and very kind of energizing there was just a, like a lot of energy huge swaths actually of the middle class and many people in Tehran were obviously similarly very much angered and dismayed that um, Ahmadinejad was their sort of representative on the global stage. Um, part of this was obviously to do with kind of a degree of classism. They just couldn't believe that this uh, quote-unquote reprobate was kind of representing Iran um, and they were kind of embarrassed and ashamed. Should be familiar to people who've, you know, interacted with American liberals in recent years that <laughs> sort yeah, of so many, so, yeah yeah so many were actually were horrified by that they were seen he was seen as a, a grow a gross gratuitous kind of populist and yeah and, and other criticisms were of course very much warranted for the lack of accountability the complete you know the the, the, the sort of the increasing levels of corruption and yeah, the very kind of arbitrary way in which he would wield his authority to the benefit of his kind of close, his cabal of kind of associates and such. So they were both kind of classist, you could say rather problematic reasons why some people took issue with them, but there were also, you know, solid reasons why many were um, took issue with him. So there was both like at the level of society, various classes within Iranian society, particularly obviously the more urban and urbane, um, as well as the political class. So Musavi is kind of coming in to, like I said, set things on track again. Um, and, uh, you know, very much like an energized campaign. Um, I think many, many, very many reformists this time did think that they stood the best chance, they stood a very solid, a good chance of um, winning. And they used, in the course of the campaign, they used the colour green, obviously the colour of Islam and the fact that Mir Hussein Musafi was a descendant of the Prophet and um, all of that was sort of there. And um, yeah, I think expectations were very, very high. So when the election results basically come out and it turns out that Ahmadinejad wins with a, a landslide, 
a very significant one. Um, and actually, I think, um, increased his um, proportion of the vote even. Uh, a lot of people, uh, and there was a lot of circumstantial evidence saying that, you know, there's something quite dubious here and um, electoral irregularities. And actually, even on the night of the election before the result had been definitively sort of declared, uh, Musavi basically said he had he was the winner. He thought he had actually won it. But as sort of the Ministry of Interior starts releasing the results and as it sort of comes clearer and clearer, that Ahmadinejad um, very much decisively, decisively won. And yeah, and this basically sparked, you could say, probably one of the biggest challenges to the Islamic Republic since the revolution. A huge, huge, huge sort of mobilisation, people sort of demanding for a recount, uh, demanding, and one of the key slogans was, where is my vote? And very much sort of a demand on the establishment to basically investigate in a, in a fair and impartial manner, uh, do a complete recount. And I guess many were hoping that the result would, you know, would lead to a, a Musa victory. Um, that's very quickly, any sort of, any kind of prospect of that happening is rapidly kind of snuffed out, is shut down, both by the Guardian Council and Rafsanjani has a rather ambivalent sort of uh, position in favour of the uh, protesters. But then Khamenei sort of comes and very kind of firmly says, um, no, this is an end to the protests. We are not actually tolerating this. The, this, the result was final. And also very interestingly, um, this is where while the divisions between Rafsanjani and Khamenei had, you know, had been growing and growing over the years. And actually Rafsanjani's defeat in 2005 at the hands of uh, Ahmadinejad was undoubtedly very um, was sort of looked upon positively by um, Khamenei. But then, when we reach sort of two thousand and nine, and Rafsanjani's position is what it is, and sort of in support of the protests in a kind of qualified way, uh, Khamenei comes out and says very, you know, very very clearly that my views are closer to those of Mr. Ahmadinejad, and this is where it's seen that Khamenei is clearly aligning himself not only with, with with the result, but obviously with the agenda that was being pursued by Khamenei, and obviously the the various sort of coalition of interests that were at stake, both in the sort of the security apparatus, the intelligence apparatuses, and also more broadly within um, society, within those conservative currents and, and sort of is Islamist currents, which continue to support um, this wing of the the regime. But as I said, it was sort of what it, the protests very much continue, um, um, but still were sort of in, uh, within really the broad parameters of reforming um, the Islamic Republic, um, and then really, over, as time sort of carries on, the demands become more and more radical. Musavi um, and another sort of presidential candidate, Meti Karawi, are put under house arrest, and they still are until the present day. And those protests and cycle of protests really carry on for several months until they're kind of finally put to bed. And also another interesting, I think, just part of this is like Twitter had sort of just come online so it's sort of the first time that we see kind of these kinds of protests reaching around the sort of all four corners of the globe through basically video, video, grainy videos being passed, uh, sort of uh, being posted online and being shared. And yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a it was a very, and also BBC Persian uh, the t as a TV station also emerges in this period and sort of is covering this um, very very closely. So it's also very mediatized. I mean, both when we look at the presidential debates that I was talking about, but also actually in the coverage of the of the protests, and it sort of creates a 
I mean, it's it's interesting of how we relate to it. Obviously, those um, obviously Iranians in the diaspora as well, how they also related to those protests very differently from maybe past ones, where you know you'd only have sort of leaks and inklings of what was going on. You wouldn't really have such a vivid um, kind of time space compression in the forms of, sort of successions of a successive series of videos showing kind of both protests and sort of um, and also the repression of those protests. And obviously, most kind of I guess iconically, the the killing of um, the young. A young girl Neda Ava Sultan, um, who is shot by Willen, sort of dies on on camera, and then um, famously, I believe, is sort of mentioned by Obama in one of his um, speeches in the course of the ongoing protests. So Eskandar pointed out a lot of the really important things that happened in two thousand nine, and these enormous protests that I think it's absolutely right to call them the most pronounced domestic crisis that the Islamic Republic leadership had faced to in terms of um, challenging its its rule since the early years of the revolution. Although initially, again, as Eskandar mentioned, the the demands or the claims of the protesters, the chants and the and the sort of idiom that they're using is still roughly within the the bounds of the Islamic system. You know, the chant of where is my vote is not a revolutionary demand, uh, at least in the earliest months of the of this of this protest movement. But I want to flag just a couple of other small things, or well, big things, but in brief. One of them is that we really see in this time, just as in earlier moments of crisis in the Islamic Republic, the issue of torture and prison abuse again becomes enormously publicly prominent. The issue of torture and prison abuse, of course, is one of the things that brings opponents of the Shah together across a political spectrum. It is the thing that, uh, you know, it's something that uh, various members of the Islamic Republic coalition eventually fall afoul of the government um, from the earliest moment of the government until until today. But again, there is this um, awareness that as thousands and thousands of people are being arrested and, and incarcerated and jailed, I should say, um, that there is a great deal of violence and abuse being meted upon them. Um, and this becomes a matter of public prominence. Now, of course, human rights organizations that have been our old pros at sort of publicizing this globally, but even internally, it becomes a matter of major concern. So one of the reformist um, presidential candidates, a figure by the name of Mehdi Karoubi, demands, uh, publicly demands um, that the members of the Islamic Republic leadership listen uh, to, you know, th- demands the opportunity to present evidence of systematic torture and rape at a, until then, relatively unknown jailing facility by, called Karizak. This becomes a huge public scandal in the country where members of the Islamic Republic elite are calling Karubi's uh, allegations baseless and that they're the work of hostile governments and all of the things that we hear are hearing again. But eventually the public pressure is such that Khamenei has to you know, he eventually claims, he publicly announces that they're going to close the prison, uh, that this prison, Kahizak, and he calls it substandard. But it's being used again for protesters uh, today. So some of the th- names that became kind of not only the names of individual reformists or protesters or, or dissidents, but the names of um, sort of carceral sites, the names of relatively unknown uh, jailing facilities, that become publicly prominent in this moment remain in the sort of public conversation today. So just as that sort of social media element is a kind of new factor, 
So are some of the efforts made to sort of clamp down on the information that's being circulated, um, including information about the systematic violence and abuse. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Polity Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Spirit of Digital Capitalism by Jenny Huberman. In this smart and thought-provoking new book, anthropologist Jenny Huberman interrogates the ideological transformations that have accompanied the emergence of digital capitalism. She examines how business gurus, entrepreneurs, and venture capitalists have co-opted the supposed values of digitization. While making claims about how digital technologies contribute to the common good, foster collaboration, and render life more convenient, capitalists simultaneously turn these qualities into ways to extract value from consumers. Ultimately, Huberman argues, the spirit of digital capitalism is Janus-faced, promising in the same moment to liberate us and surveil us, enrich us and yet render our lives more economically precarious. The Spirit of Digital Capitalism by Jenny Huberman. Learn more and pre-order at politybooks.com. In 2013, Rafsanjani ran again, but was disqualified, which is pretty remarkable given his stature in history. And also, as we mentioned earlier, very funny, because he was the one who did so much to give the Guardian Council that power in the first place. But anyhow, Rafsanjani's protege, Hassan Rouhani, did end up winning. What did Rafsanjani's disqualification and Rouhani's victory reflect about the state of Iranian politics after two decades of it swinging between so-called reformists and hardliners, a dynamic that's more complicated than it appears at first blush, as we've been discussing. But, but what did Rouhani's presidency mean for Iran and represent about it? Was Rouhani part of the Khatami tradition, or did he represent another current of Iranian politics entirely? So Rouhani is an interesting figure. He very much was in the Society of Combatant Claims, which is sort of the right wing of the sort of Khomeinist sort of establishment, uh, sort of clerical organizations. He was then subsequently, like you said, very close to um, Rasanjani and what was referred to as the new right. So yeah, he was a he was prag he was a pragmatist. He was trained in um, law, uh, but he really, from quite early on, was very much part of the uh, security establishment. Um, and I remember when he was elected in twenty thirteen. Um, amongst a lot of the euphoria, I was very, I was sort of wrote a piece where I was very sort of clear that um, one has to be kind of circumspect and have a proper appraisal because um, he definitely did not come out of the reformist um, lineage or, you know, committed to some kind of political development and deeper kind of democratization. It was very much going to be forms of reform managed from above and focusing largely on the economy and foreign policy. Um, so as I said, he, he basically served in very sort of in the Majesty Defence Committee, um, in the a very influential committee in the 80s and so on. Then he basically became sort of the long term um, secretary of the Supreme National Security Council. And so the nuclear file was predominantly under his kind of purview. Um, so he was very much somebody who was concerned with 
both, as I said, economic uh, reform, um, which often meant sort of privatization and sort of making a, creating the conditions for a welcoming kind of uh, environment for foreign investment, um, as well as security. So I think in 2013, when Rasanjani is disqualified, I think this is obviously, again, just another chapter in the long divorce between Rasanjani and Khamenei. So on the one, it's very much sort of sending again a signal to um, Khamenei, sending a signal to his former um, friend that your vision of the Islamic Republic and the direction which you would think is fundamentally at odds with mine. Rouhani was indeed close to um, Rasanjani, but I don't say I don't think he was exclusively so, because if he was, he wouldn't have been, held this sort of very, very kind of important position, Supreme National Security Council, for so many years. Um, he is he 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 is and he was a trusted confidant of Khamenei as well, um, and he was just seen as a a steady pair of hands, an establishment figure. Uh, but he was seen as sensible. I mean, a bit like I mean, maybe the analogy doesn't entirely work, but a bit like a kind of a Biden, like a kind of a safe pair of hands, someone part of the establishment. You know him. You're not particularly uh, enthralled by him, but you know, you know, he's you know after basically Ahmadinejad, for instance, broke. And again, I'm using this in inverted in, in scare quotes here. Broke the economy. Now we're going to give it back to somebody who's a, an adult in the room, which then makes him appear to casual observers in the West like he is kind of a successor to Khatami, even though that's not true at all. Just by contrast to Ahmadinejad, he seems like relatively normal and like not erratic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. He was basically um, sort of, I guess you could say, a return back to, uh, kind of a return back to quote-unquote normality. So one of his famous things in the course of the, when he was criticizing Ahmadinejad and particularly the nuclear diplomacy, and this carried a lot of weight in the broader political class as well, because he um, had such significant roles in the Supreme National Security Council, who says, yes, the centrifuges can spin, but as long as the economy is also kind of work it's spinning, this was sort of what he was saying, that you can't, um, you know, this kind of brinkmanship and carelessness and recklessness in terms of your rhetoric, which is needlessly um, causing Iran's sort of nuclear file to be sent to the um, Security Council and is basically creating a pretext whereby Iran's enemies could exploit this to impose kind of crippling sanctions. He said, this is just reckless and um, we need sort of adults in the room again. So, in this respect, you know, he was he was seen as as sort of a return to, so as I said, to um, yeah something approaching, approximating normality. And many people didn't think that he would actually win because um, of Ahmadinejad's sort of two terms and the fact that the two thousand nine election was so heavily contested. It was it, many people kind of thought that the system would move further to the right and that the person that he was running off against, Saeed Jalili, who was a very kind of um, very like, far right um, conservative figure, would ultra conservative figure, would become um, the president. And that was actually ultimately, that was proven um, to be incorrect. I mean, obviously, this then maybe subsequently happened with Raisi. But um, as we know as well, sort of the, there were in this period, even before the election of Rouhani, there were sort of the, there was this exploration of um, negotiations over the nuclear file in Oman. So this also indicates again we don't know for cer- for certain it's largely speculative, but it seems that Khamenei himself was very very aware that there was a need um, to sort of solve the nuclear impasse, and this would be needed for economic stability and such. So I mean, Rouhani was very much he was he was elected to solve two things. I think one to, like one was this return to normality, um, and particularly I think um, members of the 
you know, many in the middle classes um, were of a mind that uh, the region was also profoundly unstable. I mean, we had events in Syria, we had obviously the instability in Iraq, Afghanistan, so on and so forth. So he was very much like a stability candidate, and he was elected to fix the economy and fix the, the on the diplomatic front the nuclear file and to reach some kind of diplomatic um, accord with the West. And of course, yeah, he he was ultimately um, successful um, in um, twenty fifteen on the with the nuclear negotiations, but obviously not for not for very long. And we can't get into detail on this, but Eskandar mentioned events in Syria, and there are indeed big events in Syria. Iran is decisive in defending the Assad regime. There are events in Iraq where Iran has become an incredibly powerful, but increasing, but over time, an increasingly resented player. Ironically, because. The U.S. opened the door for that by invading and occupying Iraq and then ongoing events in Afghanistan. Can't get into them in detail, but this is important for Iran, obviously, and very important for the larger geopolitical situation. Between the Green Movement and today's mass movement, there was another mass protest movement that erupted in 2019. Who was in the streets and, and why? And how did the government respond? And where where did that movement fit into the longer post-revolutionary history we've been discussing. So, yeah, what is interesting is, obviously, that as soon as Trump is elected in 2016, there is, even before he is elected, he is denouncing the uh, Iranian nuclear agreement as the worst deal in history and how he's going to repeal it and, and so on and so forth. At the same time, in Iran... You know, like I said, Rouhani wasn't a reformist figure. He wasn't a transformative figure, but nor is he actually delivering on the on the political front or the economic um, front. And uh, Rouhani's defenders will say this is because um, of sort of American malfeasance and the fact that they're not holding up their part of the deal. And um, but you know, you do see a significant actually growth in this period because it, but it's mainly recovery uh, as a result of the kind of the crippling sanctions which have preceded this. Um, but nevertheless, sort of discontent is running high, and it's running high at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. There are like nationwide actually protests, and they start out actually denouncing the Rouhani administration and many think from the right in the in the very in the conservatively dominated city um, of Mashhad and then really just spread like wildfire and end up calling the whole regime into into question that is one thing but then this sort of working class and also those working in sort of the informal sector casualized laborers and so on uh, and again, it's important to say, like the, the casualization, precarization of the labor forces was, a, and with these uh, labor market reforms, is a long, ongoing process which you know begins in the Khatami era um, and continues apace under Rouhani. So there's a lot, there is just a lot of economic precarity, a lot of discontent, and of course that's deeply implicated with political um, discontent and demands. And then, really, what is the spark of twenty of November twenty nineteen is when the Rouhani administration very ham-fistedly decides to remove um, fuel subsidies. Um, and they do this with this very much, you could say, in a neoliberal mold and so forth, where they, at least their, their argumentation and, and right reasoning behind it is that, oh, no, actually, we don't want to subsidize the wealthiest households, and therefore, if we remove subsidies, um, this will actually end up um, uh, benefiting, basically not going to be subsidi- subsidizing the wealthiest. Um, this is kind of the argument that they they make, but it's very ham-fistedly done because um, when Ahmadinejad actually had previously done this and pursued this profit policy, he had removed the subsidies, but at the same time, he had coupled it with cash handouts in order to counter that and the targeted, targeted cash handouts. So therefore, the, the, the poorest 
would not sort of feel it so harshly. Because if you just end up removing, um, you know, fuel subsidies, you're basically just imposing a regressive tax on the poorest. And this is exactly how it was seen, very rightly. And it just, you know, completely ate into and in many cases destroyed the livelihood of a huge, huge, huge number of people. And this is where we see these huge protests, like I said, of I would say predominantly provincial working class as well as informal sector and uh, bursting into the streets. And they are brutally, brutally repressed. Like it's it's horrifying. And we, you know, the figures vary. I mean, um, as many as maybe um, some, you know, one, one initial estimates were sort of 1,500 people were killed because they were basically sh- firing live rounds into the crowd. I think that hasn't since been proven to maybe be exaggerated, but I don't know the exact figure. So it's something between, we don't really know. It could be anything between 400 people to 1,000. So um, in any event, it is a very, very kind of repressive period. And we also see amongst obviously university students at the same time who are very kind of left leaning universities who are um, who want to sort of show solidarity with these movements as well as in the as well as in the protests themselves actually a denunciation of the whole system. So and one of the slogans is like no reformist, no principalist, the game is over for you kind of for you both. That's sort of one of the the sort of the major slogans that you would that you would hear. So I think this actually, I mean, as we move forward to twenty twenty two. Actually, we have to maybe look a little bit uh, further back and we see sort of real kind of like a a systemic kind of challenge or at least a calling into question of the entirety of the Islamic Republic. And this is very much under the period. This is under a supposedly, if not reformist, at least um, more open, like not a hardliner, basically. Um, and somebody who was supposed to be had promised, you know, and and stood on the platform of kind of economic prosperity um, and so on and so forth. Just to emphasize something that Eskandar alluded to, which is that there had actually been um, protests and strikes before this big sort of what's called Bloody November, Bloody Auburn in 2019. There had been protests and strikes uh, from uh, working class uh, Iranians and uh, and workers uh, in 2017, 2018. So they hadn't they didn't rise to this level, but there is a kind of sense of escalating grievance. 2019, uh, Eskandar did a really nice job of outlining the main grievance that sort of really sets those protests off. But I also want to note that this is a moment where the Islamic Republic, perhaps in some on some level, remembering the extent to which images and videos of the 2009 uh, protests flowed all over the country and outside of the country as well, um, had since that moment, I mean, had since even earlier been trying to control the internet, to control the flow of information and suppress the ability of of the internet as a sort of democratic space. But during the protests, the the November protests, the 2019 protests, there is a several day total blackout uh, of the internet in in Iran in such a way that this allows a great deal of information from leaking out into the into the outside world. We see those same tactics being used today as radical sort of slowdowns and even complete kind of cutting off of, uh, of the internet, ordinary people from the ability to communicate with each other and communicate with people outside of, you know, sort of media and and sympathetic fellow travelers outside of the country. This is one just uh, one other thing I think is really kind of interesting, uh, which these protests actually show, is that the Islamic Republic, which as we've been covering in the eighties, presented itself as you know the guardian and protector and vanguard of the Mosasafin, the kind of the oppressed, you know the kind of the the disinherited, the wretched, and so on and so forth. 
20, by 2019, what we see is kind of this strange serendipitous situation whereby the Islamic Republic and the middle class in many way are kind of not directly, but kind of aligned in this, insofar as there is a kind of a mutual fear of this working class uprising, uh, which is happening in 2019. So there is, a, so you do actually, one thing that we actually noticed in this period is that, obviously I'm not going to say generalise and say no middle class people sympathise with what was going, of course many did, but there was also just a, a quite pervasive fear of, and sort of often the, the protests were characterised as kind of rioters, as, as damaging public property, as, vandal, as, as hooligans, as vandalising and so on and so forth. So this is like one of the great ironies of kind of history here, where the Islamic Republic from going to you know, the, the part, the sort of the state of the, of the oppressed is now, in a sense, kind of, you know, repressing and killing en masse working class uh, Iranians. In the most recent election, the, the 2021 election that elected conservative Ibrahim Raisi to the presidency, the Guardian Council essentially barred all reformist candidates from running. What did this election reveal about the point that Iranian politics, after these decades of, of seesawing between reformists and hardliners, and within this geopolitical context, of course, of Trump having torn up the nuclear deal forged by Rouhani and Obama, what did that reveal about the point that Iranian politics had reached as of last year? And what role did that moment play in laying the groundwork for the current uprising? Did reformist politics, as we knew it, had they finally become exhausted? I think just one thing to bear in mind when we're looking at the 2021 election is actually the ageing Khamenei, um, very much probably aware of his own mortality and imminent um, death and the necessity of ensuring a relatively um, straightforward and ordered um, transition, um, much like the one that he actually uh, did enjoy. Um, you know, after Khomeini's death, it was a relatively smooth transition. Um, so I think this is definitely something which very much is uh, on, was and is um, on his mind. And um, obviously, we don't know what his grand designs really are, but um, clearly that, you know, he decided and the Guardian Council and those um, bodies which are very much allied with his interests and which he has you know, a huge degree of uh, control over. The fact that they prohibited even like, not only just reformists, but actually even kind of moderate, like um, principalist conservative figures, like absolutely establishment of the establishment, like people like Ali Lorijani from actually, who was a former uh, parliamentary speaker, former nuclear negotiator. I mean, you can't get a, more of an insider. The fact that these people were actually not even allowed to stand and it was basically teed up for Raisi, who, as Gona was saying, this figure who really came from obscurity, um, obviously had this very, very kind of um, dark past and involvement in these mass executions in the 1980s, and then subsequently had, you know, had worked in the as a, as a prosecutor, and very much a kind of a reviled institution, actually, uh, by many um, in uh, Iran, and seen as kind of really one of the main agents of repression, but then he's very quickly kind of uh, promoted to, first of all, to head this very kind of the most powerful kind of conglomerate, um, sort of religious foundation called the Astana Qudza Razavi in Mashhad, where his father-in-law is a very kind of powerful, ultra-right-wing Ayatollah. Um, and then he becomes the head of the judiciary, again, a super prestigious, powerful, powerful, powerful post, 
And then he was actually, if we remember, he's actually defeated in the second um, election. Right? So he actually stands against Rouhani in Rouhani's second term and loses. But then he's put forward again. And in a sense, we can see this very much as a uh, in, very engineered election in order to ensure a guaranteed result. And I don't know, my thinking, um, I think probably one of the more plausible explanations is that uh, yeah, Khamenei and that part of the establishment wants to have a firm grip of things when um, Khamenei dies. Um, who will then ultimately succeed to him is, is obviously unclear. But I think, you know, yeah, it definitely does speak to reformists being um, a spent force. And I mean, the reformists also have a lot to answer for. I mean, the fact that they really, I mean, this is not to say they weren't at all cr- critical of uh, Rouhani when he was in power, but for the most part, they had really, in a sense, tied their wagon to Rouhani's star. And in doing that, they had really implicated um, themselves, like really kind of irreparably. All of the, I mean, not only the, the corruption, as I said, the sort of the massive repression of protests since 2019, the disappointments, the lack of delivery and economic growth and prosperity and all these sorts of things. So they really had um, at least that wing of the um, reformist sort of establishment that was still willing to play ball. Um, which often in, in, you know, amongst sort of um, Iranian pundits, they're called kind of like state reformists. They really had actually bankrupted or sort of really sort of deprived it of the legitimacy which it had enjoyed, like in the in the in the late nineteen nineties. And as I said, we've really just seen this consolidation whereby the right, the hard right, controls all the major organs of the state, from the judiciary to the parliament to the Ministry of Intelligence. Um, to you know, and and dominates the press and the public sphere and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I would say that the reformist project has very much shown itself to be a spent force and doesn't have answers of how to actually overcome and find a way out of this impasse. And this is why people have found themselves increasingly um, radicalized. Connor, the mood in the country is quite grim at the time of the twenty twenty one election for the same reason that the mood is grim around the world um, in some ways in this time, because the COVID-19 pandemic hits Iran extremely hard and its government is sort of seen as really not doing a good job of responding to the crisis when it first hits. The other sort of thing I would like to note is that, of course, in uh, January of 2020, the Trump administration sort of shockingly uh, assassinates um, this important military, I mean, central military figure, uh, Qasem Soleimani. And this is, of course, a shock in Iran and outside of Iran. Um, but it also leads to a few days later when there's this kind of standoff between the U.S. and the uh, Islamic Republic. And it's not clear if there's going to be an even further kind of military um, escalation. In that sort of days of crisis, there is a passenger plane, the U- Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, which is shot down. And the people on board who are just ordinary folks, there's um, Iranian Canadians, there's um, just, uh, it's, it's a civilian plane, um, is shot down. And it, it becomes evident that the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, has had mistaken this passenger plane um, for an American cruise missile or some sort of weapon of war. And this is leads to a huge public outpouring of grief. And it's actually very hard to overstate how devastating this event is. In the first place, loved ones are lost, so it's devastating on that level. And it's seen as just 
huge just indictment of the utter um, incompetence of the government, right? Something like, I can compare it to maybe like something like the Seoul ferry d- disaster in in South Korea that leads to the protest movement that uh, sort of makes the right-wing president their fall. But these just ordinary, innocent people who are just trying to live their lives, you know, that's the narrative that emerges here, that it's not even protest. This is not a government that's, it's killing protesters, it's eating its own children, it's doing all this and that. But even ordinary people who are just trying to live are getting in the way of its incompetence. And if not just incompetence, but cravenness has been put in the crosshairs by by this government that just won't get out of ordinary people's way. Which flips the script on the sort of the vibe of nationalist national mourning around Soleimani, like very quickly. Yeah, there had absolutely been nationalist national mourning around Soleimani. And Soleimani is an interesting figure, too, because um, although he is obviously very much a part of the IRGC, because he's largely deployed outside of the country, he's not associated with the kind of the brutal repression of protesters and and, uh, intellectuals and students inside of the country. And he has some nationalist cred as the person who is most responsible for keeping the sort of forces of crisis that are constantly and the war and terrorism that's constantly flaring everywhere around Iran, you know, that's keeping ISIS at bay, that's keeping, yeah, Al-Qaeda at bay, that's keeping all of these different sort of forces of of collapse in the region, keeping it out of Iran, there's definitely a sense of kind of nationalist rally around the flag that is just totally punctured by by this grave tragedy. And it's in the context of that, that remains a, a major issue. Then COVID hits not long after, and the, that is just seen as another sign of government's incompetence. And so this is not just reflecting reformists, of course, but it's like all of supports the mood of like, as Eskandar said, people saying reformists or principalists, like we're done with it. And with this mood of we gave we gave these people a meaningful chance and here we are. So that's the kind of context in which um, and at the same time, for several years, there are these kind of flares of protests at the um, this same year. There is um, these big water protests because people don't have access to clean drinking water. So, again, something that we see in the U.S. in the Flint water crisis and again in Jackson, Mississippi, but like on a somewhat larger scale. And again, really, really hurting poor folks the most. Right. So all of this plays into the the sense of this is a government that's with, with frustration, even among some of its former sort of its base, right? These are, they're supposed to have treated the so-called wretched and the oppressed well, but here we are, we don't have drinking water. They shoot us out of the sky. You know, like it's just crisis compounded upon crisis. And that's the context into which Raisi's election is basically, it's just a total show. Everyone is disallowed from running. Other principalists, reformists, Ahmadinejad, everyone's just told to go away. And it's just a kind of uh, coordination, really, for, for Raisi. It's seen that way at any rate. The current uprising began after Gina Masa Amini, a young Kurdish Iranian woman, died in morality police custody after being arrested for not properly covering her hair. Why, of all the problems facing Iran and all these contradictions that have been deepening that we've been discussing, why was it specifically the police repression of women that has sparked such an inferno? The immediate spark for this now um, several week long protest movement in Iran was, as you said, the death of Masa Amini after her arrest by the so-called morality police in Tehran 
Amini or Gina, as she was known as among her friends and family, was a Kurdish Iranian, a young Kurdish Iranian woman, her early 20s. And she had actually only been visiting Tehran to see family. You know, she was from the Kurdish uh, region of Iran from a town called Sepez. She's taken by the morality police. Uh, typically what happens in these cases is that people are picked up, usually young women, for not having proper Islamic attire, typically the veil, not fully covering their hair, and they're taken for so-called re-education. Typically will be held for short, relatively short periods of time, but uh, for what is called re-education by, this, by the government. In Amini's case, this is um, winds up being where she's killed. She's eventually released to the hospital um, where she dies. She's first in a coma and then she dies. Uh, and this sparks the movement um, that has now really captured, uh, that has spread to every single province of Iran, has spread to virtually every city, every corner, and all over the universities and different sort of um, social and public contexts uh, across the country. And I would say that in my view, we have to kind of emphasize both the continuity of these protests and this building and building sense of grievance and frustration that we've outlined, which includes social issues, includes economic issues, includes the sanctioned, strangulated economy. But I also really want to emphasize the, in some sense, that this, I don't want to overly think of this as a, a continuity because the people who are really pouring out onto the streets and the chants that they're chanting and the things that they're demanding, uh, we see some no that there's novelty in this. It's really led by young women at the forefront of this movement. We see from the first days of the uprising, groups of young women sort of tearing off their hijabs and burning them. So this was some of the first shocking and remarkable images that we saw of the protests. To more recent days, uh, students in universities and schools across the country, typically schools, including like the cafeteria and so forth, will have gender segregation. So there's these dividers between even like some of the social settings, like a cafeteria or something. There'll be these clear dividers and we're tearing those down, disallowing them from going back up, shouting down various authority figures in the Islamic Republic. So I really want to emphasize that, again, on the one hand, there is a sense of continuity and grievance with the Islamic with the both with the repressive state apparatus of the Islamic Republic and in all of these other ways in which it's seen as not having been properly sort of taking care of its uh, populace. Um, but also, again, remark on the sense of frustration that there is among young girls and women, it seems, in particular, and young people sort of more broadly of uh, both men and women with the sort of status quo of their lives as having to be under the sort of repressive structure of the Islamic Republic. There's particularly enormous protests in uh, the Kurdish parts of Iran. There's also really big protests in the southeast, southeast of Iran where there are different ethnic minorities and religious minorities, so among Sunni Muslims and, and so forth. And so there are some of the longstanding grievances are inflamed at this moment. Ethnic grievances, grievances having to do with regional autonomy, having to do with poverty, having to do with lack of access to fair processes of, of governance and so forth. But again, I, I, I again want to emphasize this kind of interesting sort of 
yeah, push and pull between these longstanding grievances and with these new forms of protest. And one of the longstanding grievances, of course, is issues of gender repression, right? One of the things I think we haven't talked about quite enough is the fact that one of the, um, some of the groups that are among those that are frustrated with the limitations of what's won under the, by the reformists is the very, very large, significant, meaningful and organized women's movement that emerged in the 1990s and escalated in the 2000s that comes of age um, in the era of the reformists and places some hopes in them and finds those hopes dashed. Well, many of the protesters today are the kids of those people or young, are younger than those people. And they're saying they clearly have no time or um, <laughs> uh, investment in, in trying to do things the same way. Uh, so there's, there's part of that too, is that again, this, this large and meaningful women's movement that, that wins some, some concessions in the nineties and two thousands, including, you know, the Islamic Republic, when it comes to power, it abrogates the family um, protection law of 1967 and another law of 1975, um, and re revokes women's rights to certain rights in divorce to, to the, the raised, raised age, uh, marriage age and, and other similar, uh, statutes. Well, some of those are pushed for and won back in the early 90s by the women's movement and not all of them. And there continue to be these kinds of efforts, anti-stoning uh, anti movement, anti-political violence against women movement. Eventually in the 2000s, there's something called the One Million Signatures Campaign. And all of these kind of lead to new kind of political language and discourse around women's rights. So that by the time 2022 rolls around and you have like Gen Zers in the mix, there's similarly a frustration with the lack of forward movement on some of those issues, uh, I think that we see. And also a sense that Masa Amini can be any, for the young people of Iran, can be any one of us. If, if you're, uh, for the w young women of Iran, she could have been any one of us. For the families of Iran, she could have been any one of our daughters, right? That's very much the sentiment that's kind of uh, presented. What political and social forces and ideologies are at play in this current uprising? And and more generally, how does this movement, its composition, the threat to the regime it poses, and the regime's response so far compare to those prior moments of major protests that we've discussed, the Green Movement and then the protest movements of 2019? I think as Golnar made you know, very clear, both uh, the Kurdish struggle, which has this sort of long and distinguished history of its own, which we've been speaking, which we have spoken about, albeit rather briefly in previous episodes, and obviously this also long-standing um, struggle of uh, of women for equality, dignity, bodily autonomy, and ultimately liberation are at the, very much at the heart of the uprising that we've been seeing. And both historically were very much a bellwether uh, and sort of gave this rather ominous indication of the authoritarian sort of highly centralized Islamist state that, that was going to, which was set to emerge um, in 1979, 1980. Um, and it's by no means an accident that both those groups really, yeah, were amongst the first to be cracked down against uh, following the revolution. So, you know, and it's quite interesting that in this sort of, in the person of Gina Amini, um, Gina Massa Amini, that we kind of see these two systems of oppression um, sort of coincide and overlap. But at the same time, I would say that what basically this event 
um, triggered. I mean, at the same time, it sort of triggered protests and demands, which sort of were coming out of a series of accumulated crises and contradictions, of which, of course, these are an integral part, um, but which the Islamic Republic has really proven incapable of um, addressing in any kind of meaningful way, let alone um, resolving. So, I mean, apart from these sort of, sort of specific gendered and ethno-national struggles that we've obviously been seeing, we've also seen exactly as Gola was saying, so this generalised rejection of dictatorship, a demand for democracy, um, a demand for personal and civil liberties, you know, or perhaps so as, you know, from some sections of the protesters, we're obviously seeing very much a repudiation of sort of the Islamist sort of social and cultural um, agenda. And this is by, by a generation that was born decades after 1979, that never saw the reformist era, very much is at odds with sort of the, the cultural social agenda, which, you know, the, the, the high echelons of the Islamic Republic um, very much aspire to impose um, in order to sort of create their uh, very much ideal homo Islamicus, sort of this ideal sort of Muslim subject. Instead, these sort of teens, you know, really are kind of, yeah, motivated by, I would say, global cultural trends, um, sort of a desire for a quote-unquote normal life, some degree of um, freedom, um, and, and very much, they're sort of very much, uh, you know, following what else is going on in the world. They, and they do feel connected, and in a sense, they feel you know, increasingly alienated from from this social order which the Islamic Republic has uh, been imposing or crafting for decades. And this is why it's very much sort of, there's a sort of bottom-up aspect to it, which Gona was talking about, you know, school children, university students, young women, so on and so forth, as well as obviously ethnic religious minorities. There is another aspect to this as well, which I think uh, is important to stress and to really kind of bring out. And that is very much a full-throated rejection of this corporatist, crony capitalist um, system, which has really taken root in uh, recent decades and has actually often worked sort of hand in glove with sort of crippling US sanctions. And in many ways, these two systems feed off one another. And as a result... We've seen sort of these multiple ruling class fractions in sort of in, in amongst the ruling amongst the ruling elites, uh, or elements sort of which are very much connected um, to the ruling elite or com and comprise part of the ruling system, become increasingly rich, and this has obviously exacerbated uh, inequality. It's increased poverty. We've seen like the deterioration, sort of uh, many sort of being plunged into absolute poverty. Um, as a result of these two dynamics of both sort of a really um, voracious crony capitalism and um, sort of sanctions which are kind of very much encompassing or trying to sort of strangle um, Iran's economy. We've also seen increasingly kind of a dowardly mobile middle class that is really just living off the wealth of past generations um, and is really struggling to kind of eke out um, an existence. But I mean, as Gona was saying, I mean, this cuts across, you know, from uh, like this downwardly middle class, this downwardly mobile middle class, all the way to, you know, uh, insecure workers who have been really suffering as a result of um, an increasingly casualized 
um, labor market. And this is why we did see strikes in places like, you know, the pet- petrochemical um, refineries of Asaluya and places such as Abadan. But yeah, it's yet to, we have to obviously see what will happen and what will ultimately transpire. And we cannot be, um, cannot gainsay that, but I'll be sure about what will ultimately uh, emerge. But, you know, that sort of the much hoped for kind of general strike that many were kind of were, that many were hoping for has yet to emerge. But you know, still we have to see what will happen. Um, this process might be ongoing, and it might take several months. I mean, the revolution itself, you know, took about a year um, uh, of constant kind of uprisings and so on. And of course, it doesn't mean that this is going to follow a comparable pattern or any such thing. But it, just to bear in mind that this might be a longer process, and we might we need to kind of be in for the long haul. And one other thing that I just wanted to really flag is that this sort of crony capitalist sanctions complex, which I which I spoke about, I mean, it is also tied to deep, deep, deep seated kind of env- environmental challenges, which we've only really just kind of nodded to very briefly. And, you know, these again speak to a deeper crisis in the country. But it was, and this is, can really be seen in places like Khuzestan, um, the southwest province of Khuzestan where we have like air and water pollution, which is really just uh, unbelievable, soil degradation, water insecurity, um, which is basically just making everyday life for people there like intolerable. And while these problems are obviously much huge, much bigger than much bigger than Iran, I mean, as a global challenges, global problems which we're facing, people protesting and people that have been protesting, protesting not just now, but literally over the last you know several years, they do see them as, and they're completely right in seeing them as, as kind of tied into or inseparable from this kind of authoritarian crony capitalist kind of system, which has been suffocating people's lives and life chances, and really just their ability to kind of flourish for for decades. So, you know, there are these deep, deep kind of, I would say, structural systemic dynamics and crises at work, and which, you know, neither a moderate, you know, a moderate, quote unquote, kind of administration nor a hardline one um, have been able to to solve. And that's why the, one of the things which has been consistent is kind of the, the level of repression. The one thing that I would say that is really different this time is, as Gorn, I was saying, is like the fact that um, even though there is not a there's not a leader, there isn't an organization per, per se, and the, all of these things are very much up in the air, the fact that there is this kind of positive vision of women life freedom, which does, in a sense, um, furnish a kind of a new sort of horizon, a kind of a positive vision around which a movement might be able to coalesce, that's something which is very different. And um, without doubt, um, marks a real watershed in sort of the struggles for change uh, under the Islamic Republic. Eskandar Siddiqui and Gulnar Nikpur, thank you both very much for embarking on this journey with me. Thanks so much for having us, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much, Dan, for having us. And thanks to all your listeners for sticking with it for these four episodes. That was part five of my five-part series on the history of modern Iran with Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi and Golnar Nikpur. Thank you so much for listening. This was wonderful. Eskander Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. Golnar Nikpur is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran. 
and is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, anyone who knows anything of history knows that great social changes are impossible without the feminine ferment. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio-Frankos and Ben Maybe. A really huge thanks to Nushin Samimi and Sarah Hassani for helping me prep this series. And also to Eskandar and Golnar, because this was a huge undertaking and a collaborative, collective one as well. Thank you. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.